Well, they got a new dance and it goes like this. Hello, everybody. This is Joey D from Joey D and the Starlighters. And I have a new book out called The Peppermint Twist Chronicles. And you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with my pal, Robert Miller. Be here or be square. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is a true music legend, Ron Dante. It's a name that not everyone is familiar with, but he was the singer of the Archie's number one hit, Sugar Sugar, in 1969. And then he had another number one hit with the Cufflinks, Tracy, in 1969. And he went on to produce Barry Manilow's first nine albums, including Manilow's number one hit, Mandy. And then he was also a producer for Cher and Pat Benatar. How about that? And in the second half of this show, as I do with all my musician guests, we are going to do something that I call a song fest, where we're going to play a handful of Ron's best, greatest hits, and we're going to talk about them and talk about the backstories and have a lot of fun. And nobody else does this on podcasts, I can assure you. My featured song that's playing underneath this introduction, and I always feature a song of mine in each episode. This one is called Ode to Jerry. It's from the album Play by my band Project Grand Slam. And I am renaming that song for this occasion as Ode to Ron, because an ode is high praise for someone, and Ron Dante is an individual who deserves high praise. So, Ron Dante, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert. Good to be here. I'll tell you, you know, it's you're lucky in life if you can get to the top of anything one time. I don't care what it is. You made it to the top of the charts twice in one year. Tell us what that was like. Well, it was 1969, and it was a great year. I mean, I must. I was singing commercials. I was producing some records. And I was singing for these groups. And it was, it was a thrill. Something happened that year. I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, Sugar Sugar exploded around the world as a number one record. People didn't, who had never seen the uh, cartoon on Saturday mornings just loved the sound of the record and bought it and danced to it all over the world. So that was a kick. And at the same time, I had another group called the Cufflinks, and we had a hit called Tracy. And Tracy was also in the top 10 at the same time. So it was like... It was like a double whammy, and uh, it was. I was. I knew that this was a very special time. I took good advantage of it in terms of recognizing that I was very fortunate to get the opportunity to sing these great songs and get them out there and get them promoted, which is the second half of every oh, every of successful course. thing. So it was great. It felt great. I mean, to have both of these things on the charts, you're probably in your early twenties at that point in time. And you probably say to yourself at some point, I got, I'm so lucky, maybe I should retire from the business at this point, because how am I going to top all of this? But you went on for a long time after that. Tell us about the arc of your career. 
Well, I was very fortunate that I had many interests. I was not only interested in um, music uh, and pop records, but I was interested in music and producing. So I, I, I was able to put my ego aside and produce other singers, male singers who would compete against me, but I, I didn't care. I knew that you had to broaden your palate as a, as a creative person. So I tried to broaden it and uh, I went into producing other people. Uh, I also went into Broadway as a, a producer because uh, I was, you know, the Brill Building and 1650 Broadway were the music meccas of Manhattan. And they were all centered right there in the Broadway uh, theater district. So I would sneak in and see shows or buy tickets and see some musicals. And I said, I always loved to write a musical or produce a musical. And I got the opportunity to do both. So tell me about Barry Manilow, because you got him at the beginning of his career, I guess. He was the the keyboard player for Bette Midler, as I understand it, at the very beginning. And then he, he emerged as a star on his own. Where did you come into the picture? Well, I have to take credit. I was the one who recorded him. <laughs> I mean, I, I was the one who recorded him first. He, he had never recorded as a soloist. He had one group out called Featherbed two or three years before I met him. That did not do very well. And when I met him, we were singing a commercial together. Uh, he had written the commercial, arranged it, and I was hired as one of the singers with him. Uh, Valerie Simpson and Melissa Manchester were also on that date as background singers, you know, as sing jingle singers. And he, after the date, he said, I know of you, I've heard of you, you've had hit records. I want to, he said to me, I want to be a solo artist. Would you listen to some of my material? I said, I'd love to. And uh, we met a few days later and he played me two or three of his songs. And one of them was Could It Be Magic? And I said, wow, this is a great song. This is a great approach. Classical music, pop music together. Uh, so we I took him in the studio and I recorded him. Uh, and about a year later, uh, we, less than a year later, we had a record contract. And uh, a few months after that, Mandy came out, which was his very first solo hit that uh, I co-produced with him. And we went on for the next five or six years making hits. Uh, went all the way through 1981. From, 80, from 73 to 81, we worked on a bunch of albums. So how did it feel? I mean, you are, you're a singer. You're a musician yourself. You had this massive number one hit. You had the other top 10 hit with Tracy. And now you're producing at the same time or in the same era. What did you like better? Well, I, I was thrilled to do anything. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I, was a, I, was, I was the kind of guy that, you know, if you said, can you, I would say yes first and then figure out how to do it. I, I, I would just jump in with both feet. And, uh, and with uh, producing, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was like uh, Orson Welles once said, producing a film is like having a, your own train set and you can build your own cities. Well, it's the same thing with music and producing records. You know, I could choose the, um, with Barry, I could choose the, the uh, song, the arranger, the uh, studio, the engineer. I could mix it. I could bring out elements. So I liked both. I love to sing. And in fact, on every Manilow record, especially the hit singles, I'm singing background with Barry on those records. So you get all the residuals for that too, huh? I wish. I wish. <laughs> not, not so great. But... It was, I, I, I thought it had some aspect of luck, 
that because my voice was heard by millions and millions of people from the cufflinks and the archies over the years that in the background it would be like a subliminal thing that said this is a hit record and and i i just thought it was a lucky thing it's like ball players who wear the same socks you know so i i put my voice on every one one of manilow's singles and uh, with him all right go back to the archies and sugar sugar i mean that song, as you said, it exploded. And here it is. It's 50 plus years later. You still hear that song all over the place, you know, not only on classic rock radio and 60s radio and all of that, but just in general. It's so hard to have a song that lasts for that long. I mean, at the time you did it, you can't possibly know that it's going to have legs like that. What did you think when you were recording it? Well, it, it, was, it was in the middle of many, many other songs. It wasn't like a single session with just that song. We were doing tons of music for the Archie show. There were like two songs on each show and a dance of the week. So we had we were, we were doing, Jeff Barry was producing a lot of music for it. And Sugar Sugar, I remember that session distinctly, the part of it that, uh, that we took more time with the track. Jeff, Jeff and Andy Kim, who wrote the song with Jeff Barry, uh, worked on that track a little extra. The other ones were done in 20 minutes. This one took an hour or so, an hour and a half. <laughs> and, and the band couldn't get the groove until uh, Andy went out, Andy Kim went out and played his guitar and said, here's the feel. And he gave the band the feel and Jeff worked on the bass player more than anybody else. He said, I want the bass to sound like this. So uh, I remember thinking, well, they're working harder on it. And when I got to do the vocal, I, I, I gave myself a special uh, thing to make it sound hushed and and uh, different than some of the other archie tracks i actually was channeling donovan i was thinking of mellow really? yellow i was thinking <laughs> of mellow yellow i was saying they call me mellow yellow i was thinking maybe i'll do sugar ah honey honey i was doing a similar thing in my head of course it didn't sound anything like donovan they call me mellow yellow quite rightly they call me mellow yellow it came out my own sound, my own East Coast, New now, York. I want sound. you to I want you to stop for a second because we got breaking news on this podcast. Okay, we've got Ron Dante saying that when he sang "Sugar Sugar," he was channeling his inner Donovan. I love it. Yes, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Now, who were the guys that played on the track? Was it the whole Wrecking Crew? group or did they have other guys that played on this this was all new york city guys nobody okay. from the west coast which was the wrecking crew new york had its own deep deep uh, uh, collection of musicians if you wanted to book a bass player there were five guys who could come in and knock it out of the park same thing with guitars drums and and, and anything else that you wanted so was there a house band or something for the archie show it was just a band that Jeff Barry liked to use. Uh, it was a bunch of studio musicians who during the day would do commercials. Right. Uh, they would do movie themes. And at night they'd do records. And uh, so they worked all day, these guys. You were part of the whole jingle scene as well, weren't you? Oh, yeah. I was in jingles for many, many years. And it's sad in a sense because that whole scene has, has receded, hasn't it? It's, it's really not there the way it was at one point. No, it's gone completely. I mean, it's like now now the, the producers of the jingles actually try to sing the commercials. 
lots of singers are not getting jobs and the things you hear on the air are terrible. I mean, I'm just, just unless they use an old classic song, the, the jingles are horrible today. You know, it's funny. A couple of times I've had people on the podcast from the advertising world. And I've said to them all along, I said, you had this great concept called jingles back in the day. Everybody knew them. Everybody sang along with them. They were wonderful. They, they were only, not only for products, but they were for television shows as well. What happened to it? And nobody gave me a real good answer. But you're right. Everybody remembered these things. Yeah, I think greed had a lot to do with it. It knocked out the talented people and the, the very limited talented people became in charge of the jingle. Uh, the advertisers realized that it was nothing. There was nothing like a great commercial jingle. Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, American Airlines. You, you think of all the great commercials that were out right. there. Uh, they sold the product. People love the commercials. When I do my act, when I get out and I sing live, I do five or six of my commercials once in a while because people <laughs> remember the songs. All right. What were your top two commercials? The first one is uh, the Coke commercial. I'd, I'd like, like to teach the, the world, world to sing. sing. Sing with me. That was you, huh? I, I did a bunch of those. I was okay. the lead singer on a lot of those. Great. And the other was uh, Pepsi, uh, you know, You've Got a Lot to Live and Pepsi's Got a Lot to Give commercial. You've got a lot to live and Pepsi's got a lot to give. Yeah. Written by Joe Brooks. Uh, great, great commercial. Uh, Dr. Pepper, I'm a pepper, you're a pepper. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? Uh, I was the voice on that, a lot of those. So, I, you know, I did thousands of commercials in my day. I was, I was a jingle singer, the guy you would call to, you know, sound like uh, the Beach Boys or the Beatles or uh, Lou Christie or, you know, any of these great artists. And a couple of those jingles actually turned into commercial songs i'm thinking of plop plop fizz fizz oh what a relief it is and that was whatever shape your stomach's in right the alka-seltzer song And there was a music, a girl watchers theme. By Bob Crew, the great <laughs> legendary record producer of the Four Seasons, wrote that commercial, turned it into a hit song. It's too bad that this stuff doesn't exist anymore. It really is. Well, it's it's over, you know. The time it's, it's kind of it was a great golden time of uh, creative people contributing to the advertising world. Yeah, now the yeah. advertising world's gone south, especially in music. All right, you met some interesting people along the way. One of whom that jumped out at me was Don Kirshner, who everybody kind of knew at that time from Don Kirshner's rock concert on TV. Tell us a little bit about Don Kirshner. Don Kirshner was like your favorite uncle. 
who comes to visit you as a kid on Sunday and he slips you a $5 bill and says, don't tell your father. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a great guy, uh, started the career of hundreds of people, hundreds of songwriters owed, uh, and artists owed their career to Don Kirshner, Tony Orlando, Neil Sedaka, Carol King were in the stable of writers when I joined the firm as a kid. I was like 17. He signed me to be a staff demo maker and write some songs. I was so lucky to be in New York City to be able to go visit that office, get a chance and be heard by Kirshner. It was a great guy. And he had a great ear for hit songs. He knew a hit song when he heard it and, and he, he could get it to the right person. So I always enjoyed my experiences with Don Kirshner. He gets to uh, he gets maligned once in a while by the monkey episode. But that was a that was a minor thing in his career. That was majority of his career. He started the career of lots of people. It's nice to hear because a lot of the old guys that were at the top, like Kirshner, you, you hear the bad stories about them. You know, they were stealing money. They were not paying the artists, etc. But it's nice to hear that you're talking so nicely about them. Don Kirshner once said to me, as long as my writers get paid on Friday, I'm a happy guy. Because he would pay his writers advances every Friday against what they might make. Even if they weren't making hit records, you would still get a check on Friday. Wow. In fact, one quick story. Uh, when I joined his firm, I had a convertible and I had a great Gretsch guitar. And it was, and it was stolen right out of my guitar, out of my car. So I went to Donnie. I said, Donnie, somebody stole my guitar. He said, don't know. Here's a check. Go buy the same guitar. So about six months later, that guitar was stolen. Right? <laughs> so so I go, I got to stop parking in that parking lot. They're, they're bad people in there. Anyway, I went to Kirsten. I said it was stolen again. He said, no problem, kid. Here's a check. Go buy the same guitar. He was a stand-up guy. So wow. that's all I can say. God bless that guy. Wow. That's something else. Okay. Let's go on. To, I want to hear a little bit about some of the work you did with other people. I know you work with the Turtles. You work with Cher. You work with Pat Benatar. Tell us a little bit about those things. Well, uh, the first one you mentioned is the Turtles. Uh, I, I was booked on the Happy Together Tour that would headline the Turtles and the Association, Gary Puckett, Mark Lindsay, uh, about four or five years ago as, the, as an act. Uh, well, the, after the first year, they called me up and they said, we want you for the second year, but we want you to be the lead singer of the Turtles. The lead singer, Howard Kalin, is retiring. He can't work. He can't travel anymore. So I became the lead singer of the Turtles. So you were Flo or, or you were Eddie? Which one? <laughs> uh, I was I was. That's funny. I was Eddie. OK. Uh, Flo is Mark, Mark Bowman. Okay. So I, I became that. And Mark called me and said, we're going to concentrate on the hit songs. So we're going to concentrate on the music, not a lot of comedy. And it worked. And I did it three years in a row. And uh, I even did it last summer. We went out and did a bunch of uh, 25 shows. So it was great doing Happy Together every night. You know, and I know she'd rather be with me. So that was my experience with the Turtles. And it looks like next summer I'll be out for another 60 shows with the Turtles. Yeah, God willing. So uh, it looks good. So uh, my experiences with other artists such as Cher were unbelievable to sit in the same studio with Cher. And there she is. It's like the Statue of Liberty come to life. She's <laughs> one of the biggest stars in the world when I worked with her, 79 or 80. And uh, she was the easiest thing to work with. She would come in early, leave late. She knew her stuff. We did five songs together. And uh, she was just delightful. Uh, easy to talk to with the band, 
The band loved her. My engineers loved her. She was just the greatest lady. See, she's got this diva, you know, reputation. So you would have thought that she would be tough to work with. So it's nice to hear the other side of this. Yeah, she would come in at 12 o'clock at the studio and bring a case of Coors beer. And she would sip that beer all during the vocal sessions. And by the end of the night, she was as happy as you could be. And, we, <laughs> you know, we drove, we drove to a place in Malibu and listened to what we did for the day. So she was she was not a diva with me. She was a, a, a gracious uh, professional. And she used to sing backup, didn't she, on, on a bunch of songs, I, I understand. Yeah, she, she, she was doing a backup when she was discovered, I kind of, by uh, Sonny, who said, this girl's got more talent than all the backup singers I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> you know? Okay, so and what about Pat Benatar? Benatar was uh, brought to me by uh, a good DJ friend of mine in New York City, Jim Kerr. He said, Chrysalis is looking for a producer for this new artist, and they want you to go take a look at her in a little club downtown in Manhattan. So I went and looked at her. Uh, she sang three or four songs. When she did, You, go, you Better Run by, by the, uh, old, the old Rascal song. You go around telling lies and now you want to compromise what you're trying to do to my heart. You better run. You better hide. That's, that's a niche for her. She did a few big ballads. And I said, well, we don't need to do big ballads with her. I'm not going to produce her like I produced Barry Manilow with big ballads. I said, she's a rocker. We should do a very hard rock session with lots of crunchy guitars. So I took her in the studio. At first, she was a little nervous performing in a studio because she'd always performed in front of people. So I put up a stage in the studio, <laughs> got a spotlight, invited a small audience, and then I let her do her vocals. And she just took off. What a clever idea to do it that way. Good for you. As a producer, as you probably know, you've got to, you know, think outside the box. Yeah. And, uh, and, and she, she was also very professional and easy to work with. And, and, and she knew she was going to do something with her career and life, especially after our sessions, because it gave her her direction. We did You Better Run and Heartbreaker on that first session. And it, the, the ballad we did in the session was Crying by Roy Orbson which would, had not been re-recorded yet. So uh, it was a very hit session. Well, Heartbreaker certainly worked. So good for you. Hey, everybody. My Follow Your Dream handbook is an Amazon number one bestseller. It's a combination memoir of my unique musical journey and a step-by-step how-to for you to follow and succeed at your dream. It's available at Amazon and wherever books are sold. Check it out today. All right, let's go to the second half of our episode where we do the song fest thing. Now we've talked about Sugar Sugar. We're gonna we're playing it now underneath us as we speak. So what else can you tell us about that? The song, the situation, what it meant to you. Just give us a, a backstory on that. I just can't believe the loveliness of loving.
the session, as I said, was magnificent. It really was, it felt special at that time when we finally got to Sugar Sugar. Uh, everybody kicked in. The band kicked in, the, the backgrounds. The background singer with me was uh, Miss Tony Wine. Now, Tony Wine is a great female singer and songwriter. She, she went on to write Groovy Kind of Love. Really? And Candida for Tony Orlando, which she still tours with Tony Orlando. So she and I were the voices of that group. And I remember thinking, I'm so happy that Tony Wine is here in the studio with me because we started at the Kirshner office as teenagers together. She was one of the first songwriters I met at the office. So it was, it was a great combination of voices. Hers and mine really meshed. And it was, it was a youthful, happy sound. And, uh, was. So, yeah. And, and I remember the night Sugar Sugar went number one. I, I, I went out in the rain to go to the, one of the newsstands to pick up Cashbox and Billboard, the big music business things. I got out of the cab and I grabbed the cash box and billboard and I jumped in the car and I opened them up and there at the top of the charts was sugar, <laughs> sugar. And it was like, man, this is the highest, greatest moments of my life to be able, you, as a singer. You always want the number one record. You want to be recognized for your voice. And I didn't care that my name wasn't on the record. I didn't care at all because I knew eventually people would discover who this singer is like Mark Lindsay of the Raiders or Gary, Gary Puckett, not Gary, but uh, Chuck Nigron of Three Dog Night. Everybody gets to know the lead singer. All right. I want to know one thing. Did you call your mother when you made number one? You, you know, I always call my mother. I <laughs> called my mom once, once, once a day to check in on her and see how she was doing. She always said to me, you're, you're going to make it, kid. You're going to make it. You know. Good. You had a supportive family. That's important. All right. So let's go on to the next big hit for you. That, that song, Tracy by the Cufflings. me off the ceiling Tracy day after day when you're this way I get a love and feeling And tell us a little bit about that whole situation. Well, it came about as a kind of a studio thing. I was writing with two fellows over at Screen Gems Columbia, Don Kirshner's new publishing firm, and Danny Jordan, Tommy Wynn. Uh, we're writers up there. We were writing together. We were trying to put a group together, write together. And uh, Danny's uncle was a hit songwriter named Paul Vance, who had written Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. <laughs> so Danny said, my uncle wants us to come in the studio, put our voices on these tracks. I, he said, I don't know what we're, if we're going to sing or we're going to act. So we went in and we acted. We spoke. I sang a little bit with the guys. And we did it like five different pieces. And about three weeks later, uh, it was on a radio show as the detergents, as a, as a real group. And it was called <laughs> Leader of the Laundromat. And the laundromat became a hit around the country. DJs just loved of that crazy parody of leader of the pack, which it was. <laughs> so that's where it came about. Uh, Dick Clark booked us for the caravan of stars. And we went out and performed with the Shangri-Las with Peter new and Herman's hermits, uh, even opened for the Rolling Stones at once in Philadelphia, which, which was a dream. It was a dream come true at 19. It was unbelievable. Wow. That's unbelievable. 
Look, it was a great song. And again, this is another one that, you know, you turn on CBS FM in New York City or Sirius XM. You hear these songs all the time, 50 years later. Did you ever think this stuff was still going to be played 50 years later? Well, who could have imagined the technology would catch up and keep evolving to where what's old is new? Who, who would have thought that? The average lifespan of an artist was three years tops if you had a hit right. and followed up with a hit. Three years, that was it. So I figured three years, Sugar Sugar will be gone, Tracy will be gone. Any of the stuff I produced in the 70s will probably not still be around. Well, it's around. And, and, and thank goodness the technology made it possible. And new generations get to hear this stuff just by a click of their phone. You know, if they, if they get an idea in their head, I'd like to hear Sugar Sugar. You say it into your phone, there it is. You know, they just, they just launched this new telescope, right? And I can imagine that there's some alien world out there that's hearing our rock and roll. <laughs> and they're going to say, man, that planet Earth had some great music. <laughs> some aliens are boogieing down, going to Casey, Casey and the Sunshine Band, right? Or, you know, they don't even know what that means, but they love it. They love it. It's because it's not what you, it, music is what you feel not what you hear. It makes you feel something. Yep. And that's the important thing about when, a, when you when you hit the right harmonies and the right song, right lyric, it makes people feel something and it, it creates an indelible memory. That's why you can I can hear a song today, remember what I was driving in 1960, yep. you know, or the girl I was dating. It brings back total memories. I agree with you on all of that. Okay, last song we're going to play is Mandy, the, the big hit that you helped uh, with uh, Barry Manilow on. I remember all my life Raining down as cold as ice Shadows of a man A face through a window Crying in the night The night goes into morning Just another day Tell us a little bit about that whole situation. Well, Barry and I were doing our second album. The first album did not do so well. We, Barry Manilow won. It, it, was, it was good. Had some hits on it, but nobody heard about it. So we were doing the second album, and uh, Clyde Davis, was, uh, record company president, would funnel in a few songs each time. And he funneled in a song called Brandy, which he wanted us to record. And Barry and I both said, well, it's a pretty good song, but we got to change the title. So I forget who came up with the title, but Mandy emerged as the title. Uh, there's even an outtake with Barry singing Old Brandy instead of <laughs> Old Mandy. I have that outtake. And, uh, and that was amazing. Magical... What's, what would Brandy mean? Come on, that's ridiculous. Okay. There was a hit called Brandy. Brandy yes, but it was a totally girl. different song, right? T totally different song and a different genre. So uh, I remember the night we were recording it. Uh, Clive wanted us to do it up tempo. Barry said, "You know, this up tempo stuff is not working." 
he said, I'm going to go out in the studio and fiddle with a little figure I've been playing. And he went out into the studio and he came down, 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 down. And he started to sing it as a ballad. And I said, quick, we've got to record this. So we only had a drummer and a bass player in the studio with him. And so I recorded it with just piano, drums, bass, and Barry singing a live vocal. And that's the one you hear on the record. Really? And we 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 supplement we we added some stuff later on. I put some strings, some horns arrangements in it with my friend Joe Renzetti, who arranged the strings and horns. And Barry and I did oohs and ahs behind it to give <laughs> it a choir type of sound. It sounds like a choir, but it's just us recorded 20 or 30 times. But that was it. We knew we had something that night. It was like lightning had struck the studio. I like when you hear stories like that. I had Mark Farner from Grand Funk Railroad on the show, and he talked about a similar thing where he he heard some people outside singing the locomotion, and he just joined in. This was outside the studio. And then they ran into the studio because Todd Rundgren, who was his producer, said, we got to record this. And they did it like right on the spot. And then I, I remember this other story. Nora Jones did this like demo for her first big hit. And that became the song that was released and it worked. So the idea that you did it on the spot like that and it worked, that's great. We were very lucky. We were in a great studio called Media Sound on 57th Street, Manhattan. It was a converted chapel. So it had <laughs> ceilings that were cathedral ceilings that had a few pews in it, stained glass windows. And the, the vocal sound in that studio was perfect. It was just the most angelic and beautiful for a good vocalist that I'd ever heard. I, I, I always recorded in that studio. And uh, you could just feel the vibrations that night. It was like, oh, if we don't screw this up, this could be a big hit record. It could launch a career. And it launched a 40-year career. I mean, you got to give it credit. That, that happened. You have to put yourself in a position to, for that to happen, though. Yes. You can't just dream about it. You have to. I had been in the studio hundreds and hundreds of times before that night. But you knew at that point. Yes, you could feel it. The only time. I, yeah, that's true. Good for you. All right. So tell us, what is Ron Dante doing these days? Well, right now I'm just I'm getting out of the COVID thing. I'm getting myself prepared to go on tour this year, which uh, it's pretty grueling. We go to about 60 cities. And uh, it's like one-nighters, you know, sing, get on a bus, and then travel to the next city. So we'll go from Florida to South Dakota and every place in the middle. So I'm getting myself physically prepared for that uh, and psychologically pre prepared for that because you have to sing every night. Otherwise, I'm good. I'm I always look around for new things to do. Uh, I just worked on a Broadway show that I, I produced called In a Booth at Chasen's, The Love Story of Ron and Nancy Reagan, written by my friend Al Kasha. So I'm trying to get that back to Broadway. We did it out here in Los Angeles a few years ago. So that's one of my uh, one of my uh, projects this year. Good for you. We are speaking to the prolific and the legendary Ron Dante. Ron, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast, and I want to wish you all the best. Thank you, Robert. It was great being here with you. We'll do it again. I hope so. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. And now you're going to hear again the song that began the uh, episode underneath the introduction, my song, Ode to Jerry, which I've renamed Ode to Ron for this occasion. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. 
you can connect with Robert at Robert at FollowYourDreamPodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at ProjectGrandSlam.com and at ThePGSStore.com.